Tuesday, Jay Sandoz, and it is Mike Gallagher. Don't call it a comeback, but he is here. I don't know if he's better than ever, but he is back. Maybe the same as ever, but Mike Gallagher is back. We are talking ETSU basketball. We are talking SoCon basketball and a special segment. But, Mike, welcome back, Bo. I think you may have to call it a comeback because there were a couple days there where I wasn't sure that a comeback would be possible. I mean, Monday, Tuesday last week, it was dicey and uh, made it through. I, I'm not going to say I was on my deathbed or anything like that, but people talk about, you know, Omicron is, or Omicron, however you say it, is this, you know, nice little thing that you get in, you know, last 24 hours, and you breeze through it like a common cold. And not my experience, Jay Sando, so my voice is still on the men. I couldn't talk for like 36 hours like a word here and there are you i felt like that was more disturbing to you because oh absolutely you know me yeah how long do i go without talking in general like 36 seconds at a time let alone 36 hours so that was very difficult for me and then the fatigue i could just not keep my eyes open and i don't sleep even at night it's very nocturnal and then during the day awake as well and so this was very very strange for me but uh thank you for carrying the load you did a podcast on your own appreciate that and Got Casey Getz coming in and filling in on the men's broadcast, and then you went down and you did the women's game. It, you really shouldered the look. Jay Sando stepping up. Appreciate that. Yeah, who knew I could do it? Right? It's one of those things. Riding a bike, they say. Uh, couldn't get us couldn't get us a win on the women's side. Uh, tried, and I, I really wanted to because last time I did a women's game, I did get a win. The only game that you have done since I have been here on the women's side on radio was maybe the most entertaining, dramatic, triumphant, whatever you want to call it, game that the women have played in my time here. I did the Tennessee game, and of course, you lose by four in front of 6,000 Freedom Hall. Amazing game, spectacular. That was probably the greatest spectacle, but probably the greatest, most dramatic, triumphant win against Liberty like three days later, 62-61 at the buzzer. So Mike has a secret hatred uh, of, of, of me. and some of it Not so secret on the podcast. True, but because of... Obviously, uh, women's basketball getting a win against Liberty, and was was, and I think I came back and rubbed it in and put, you know, oh, uh, yeah. uh, what my media pass wrote the score on an autograph. Yeah. So, and then in the spring, right, I had to come out of retirement for soccer, women's soccer. Yes. And I probably called one of the better goals in the two uh, of the better goals. I, honestly. <laughs> and so I was able to to get those, and I remember. Mike, just because uh, you had to do the second round of the uh, right. women's basketball tournament. That's and right. so when you later that night, you went back and watched the game and, and, and sent me a very nice I hate you uh, message. But well, just because I, I, I'm like Gus Johnson, you roll me in there, it's going to be something dramatic happening. Look, I mean, I think without going back and looking at the exact number, but I think women's soccer scored in the abbreviated spring season like seven goals all year. And the one game they won happened to be the one that you called, and it was 2-1 on these two just incredible goals. Goals that I've maybe seen calling women's soccer for three, four years here. Um, I've seen goals that quality maybe once or twice. And you get two in a game, and it happens to be the one win for the entire spring, and I just couldn't believe it. I'm still not over that as a community. 
that it happens. All right. So that being said, uh, we can get in over other things Mike hates me about later. Right now, uh, ETSU men's basketball coming up on Wednesday. We're going to get to this uh, Thursday. Uh, I guess I need to talk about that. We're going to do what we always do after signing day. So for the basketball fans out there, you're not you're, 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 you're that just are basketball and don't like football, or you're a Southern Conference fan that I know that tunes in just to hear our Southern Conference takes. Um, and I, I do hear from those fans that are outside of ETSU. It's not just uh, a certain group of fans. I hear from other fans. So I do like that other fan bases are starting just to get our take, whether they like or dislike. And, and for the most part, um, I, I think they're okay with our take. I don't think they get too fired up about it. But we're going to do what we always do. We're going to recap the recruiting class in football after signing day on Thursday. A year ago signing class, we'll talk about what we thought their needs were, and then we'll talk about the signing class and what they addressed, didn't address, and our thoughts of what we know about the signing class. And again, at FCS level, sometimes not everybody is signed on that day because they're still trying to get um, you know, a higher caliber athlete that is maybe holding out for that FBS or holding out for whatever it is. So. Uh, it won't probably end the class. And with the transfer portal and you get over spring practice, it still may not end. But for the actual signing day stuff, and we'll even recap who signed in the early period. We'll talk about who signed what would have been Wednesday. We'll do that on Thursday. So we'll do the all-encompassing recruiting show that we've done the last couple years, which has actually been fun. Uh, I'll be honest. I, I think I people enjoy it. it, too. I mean, that's one of our more listened-to shows throughout the year. And so I think it's beneficial for us, beneficial for the fans. And it's always fun to speculate, and whenever you can get more football, right, especially now with ETSU being a top eight program in the country. I mean, you couldn't ask for anything more. So we'll talk about that on Thursday. That'll be on the podcast. Right now, though, ETSU will take on Western Carolina. They'll go on the road to Cullowee. Cullowee won and seven in their last eight, but that win was uh, what they do. They beat Chattanooga and beat them by 11. Then they followed that up with a 20-point loss, a 38-point loss, and Boy, uh, other than the two-point game at the Citadel, they have uh, pretty much been trounced and all the other. Besides, it's just about matchups. We've talked about that before. For whatever reason, the Catamounts have matched up really well against Chattanooga. They've got a three-game winning streak versus Chattanooga, which is a bit – I mean, every time I can see the, the Matt Ryan uh, breakdown oh. uh, tier thing, that brings uh, joy to, to me. Yeah. <laughs> and in uh, enjoyment or laughter or whatever it is. And uh, and it also goes to show you that no matter what, you still have to go play games, right? And you still have to try to win games. And some teams just have teams' numbers. Now, that being said, on the flip side, it has been ETSU, like 31 or 32 or something crazy. ETSU has won. I've actually lost track of the streak, but I'm, I'm in the ballpark if I'm not exactly right. right. Yeah. I think it's 31 or 32. The only loss actually wasn't in the regular season. It was in the quarterfinals, the last game of Murray Bartos' era in the quarterfinals, Western Carolina able to win that. So it's been a long time since a regular, since the 90s, since a regular season win for the Catamounts. And certainly VMI was able to break a double-digit losing streak to ETSU. Now the Catamounts trying to break a regular season losing streak of 30-plus games against ETSU on Wednesday. Yeah, they've lost five in a row, and they're only winning that time. As you mentioned, seven of the last eight have been losses for Western Carolina. Chattanooga really just didn't have a clue that night without David Jean Baptiste, and, and that's what we have to keep qualifying that win by saying for Western Carolina is that without David Jean Baptiste, Malachi Smith had to score 33 of the team's 59 points. That was not the same Chattanooga team that we've seen. I don't know if Jean Baptiste would have made the ultimate difference that 11 points that they lost by could 
it had been a tight one on the road, or would the team just have been a totally different product that night? Because you look at one player's impact, and you're generally going to say, well, boy, can one player make up 11 points on his own? But when you have a team that is so cohesive like Chattanooga and play off each other so well, taking out one piece can be a huge difference. So you have to look more at the non-literal than the literal. The literal is, well, can he make up 11 points on his own? The non-literal and looking at the bigger picture is how much different of a team are they when he is in there and how much could everyone have benefited um, when he was in the game as opposed to missing that contest. Um, I can't recall, moving on from that game and going to the first time these two teams met, a more disjointed performance from a Southern Conference men's basketball team than the one I saw at Freedom Hall from Western Carolina the first time these two teams met. You remember the lead for ETSU was pushing 30, and then Western went on. It was like a 16-0 run. It was too late at that point. I think they cut it to 13 with like, what, two and a half minutes left or something, like two and a half, three minutes left. Uh, but it was too late. They weren't going to be able to come all the way back. But it just did not look like Justin Gray had a plan at all for his team. I mean, at all. Um, for the vast majority of that contest, and yes, Bucks let off the gas a bit, and Western was able to play some better basketball, but even when they were playing their best basketball that night, it did not look like a product that would be able to win a lot of Division One basketball games. And you look at where they are now in terms of personnel. We know the big loss was Travion McRae. They were 6-6 six and six with him. Now they played 10 games without him, and they're 2-8. and eight. And I know that he was not really a lauded player coming into this season, right? You and me wouldn't look at each other and say, wow, that's a top-five guy in the SoCon. That is someone that can carry a team. That is going to be a difference-maker at the next level. Whatever you would say about top-tier guys in the SoCon, you and me wouldn't have exchanged those words about Travion McRae. But he had made big-time strides, big progress, dropped 20 against Georgia, was averaging 11 a game, and was a glue guy, one of the few returners that was contributing on this team. They have very few returns in general. So him as a glue guy was huge, and you can see that without him it's been a real struggle. Now, say all that, and I'll say more, denigrating Western Carolina in a bit, but they are 5-3 and three at home this year. Bowling Green is one of those wins. You remember everyone was very enthused about that in Cullowee and around the Southern Conference when Western beat Bowling Green. I was enthused about it. Heck, I mean, Bowling Green out of the MAC was projected, I think, as a top-four team in that league coming into this year. To update you on Bowling Green, they are not a top four team. They're seventh in the MAC, and all of a sudden that win doesn't look nearly as good as it did at the time. Regardless, though, when they put their best foot forward, Western Carolina, and this is the case with a lot of teams, but specifically a team that has not had much success on the road, they have looked much better at home. And we can talk about the circumstances. We can talk about why. We can talk about what other teams were missing. But at some point you have to stop, look, and say they're a bit of a different team when they're in their own building. I don't know why, because the Ramsey Center is basically never loud, never full. They don't have much of a reason to get excited to watch Western Carolina because the team has been terrible for the vast majority of recent history. But ETSU cannot walk in and think that this is going to be the same team that they played at Freedom Hall because I do not believe that that same team is going to show up. Is a team capable of beating ETSU on ETSU's best day going to show up? No. If these two teams are at their best, ETSU wins by double digits. But taking anything for granted in any Southern Conference game, even this one, is fool's gold. I think what really hurt Western Carolina, they got things going at the Citadel. 
They're up 52-33 to 33 with 11.49 to go. Up 19, 12 minutes to go. So Citadel, for 28 minutes and 11 seconds, can only score 33 points. They score 35 points basically the last 12 minutes, come back and win the game 68-62. And it kind of felt like the next game against Sanford a little bit more of that hangover. And you lose a game, I mean, up 19 with 12 to go. I mean, ETSU, we talk about the Steve Forbes Xavier game, that's, that's a different animal, losing to a top-10 team in the country and then make the comeback. I think when you lose in your league with a 19-point lead with that – little time left if you get a 19 point lead in the first half early i'm not shocked if a team comes back right plenty of time there's things that maybe just went your way in a run whatever the case may be somebody leads in the first half by 19 i'm not that shocked if the team can make that up in the second half but with 12 minutes to go it's hard to do it's hard to do and i think that certainly plays into some of the things where if you're western carolina it kind of beats you down because you're trying to all right, we've beaten Chattanooga. We ought to be able to beat everybody in the league. Whether they got Baptiste or not, you can very easily sell out to anybody. Guys, this is the number one team in the league. They have only lost to us. We ought to be able to beat everybody in the league. All right, now we can get some momentum. Let's beat Citadel. We play Sanford. All three of us at the bottom of the league. We can ride off a couple of wins. Hey, then we get ETSU. They're beatable this year. Let's go get – I mean, you can easily sell that. And then all of a sudden, boom, they get hit in the mouth the last 12 minutes. And Citadel's able to come from behind and pick up the victory. I think just disheartening. For West Carolina, they got a couple things going against them. That they are worst in making shots, and they are the worst at stopping teams from hitting shots. They are tenth in field goal percentage and tenth in field goal defense. That seems like a bad recipe for me. They are tenth in three-point shooting, and the way the game goes, ETSU has actually quietly climbed to fifth in Southern Conference play. Uh, just using some obviously ETSU a little worse shooting three-point uh, field goal percentage as far as out of conference, but in conference, they are fifth as far as um, three-point shooting uh, goes, and so they're up to almost 37% from outside. So they are starting to be able to knock, and they're taking more out there because for simple reason, ETSU not having uh, a lot of inside play. ETSU at 37% makes, Western Carolina's 27, uh, or really if you round up 28%. Three-point defense, ETSU is second in the league, just giving up 33%. West Carolina's kind of in the middle, but ETSU's making more threes. They are still, and I know VMI hit 12 or 13, whatever, but still I think that's a good recipe for ETSU. Two worst free-throwing shooting teams in the league in league play. ETSU was, what, fourth in the nation going into that Georgia game, and it has just gone south and gone south quickly, and ETSU missed a couple. uh, Didn't miss many, but they missed a couple big ones with Jordan King, uh, who it's hard to say he did a whole lot wrong. He had a career-high 27 points. That might be the only thing he could point to, hit seven threes. He was 7-12, but 0-2 from the free throw line. He had that drive. He got uh, a hard foul. He didn't like it. He got up to say something to the guy, and his teammates held him back. And then I think he was a little either fatigued or concerned about that. He missed both free throws. And that's really about the only thing I think Jordan may have done bad in that. Other than that, I think he competed hard. He did you know, what he could. He's reigning. Not often do you win Southern Conference Player of the Week and your team goes 0-2. And so – I think ETSU, if they come out and hit shots, it's going to be difficult. But it was the run game, the transition. I mean, if you remember, Western Carolina called its own time, or, or um, uh, one of the players called the timeout. I'm drawing a blank. Was it Robinson? Robinson, yeah. yeah Robinson called the timeout. And Coach, well, why'd you call timeout? Justin, uh, great. Well, I think we need it. Why? Nobody's getting back, Coach. Can we, can we just get back on D? So – I think the transition game for ETSU, which they have gotten 
continuously better. They finish in transition. I think the only time they did not finish in transition was BMI, where Sloan tried to thread the needle on a full-court bounce pass uh, to Ty Brewer. Other than that, they were getting transition against BMI. And not just transition getting the rim. They were actually able to, to uh, hit a trailer and get a couple threes. Um in transition, which won't count sometimes in the fast break point because of you reversing the ball and all that, but still they were able to convert off turnovers. And so I think that's going to be the big thing for ETSU. I think for Western Carolina, they were actually leading the game last year in Culloway. I know it's a whole different Western Carolina team, staff, players, everything, but they were actually leading the Bucks at halftime last year. I think Western Carolina can get to that point, I think, certainly – um, they got a puncher's chance for ETSU. You got to figure out a way to get a win and get a win quick. Because right now, and we'll go over the SoCon standings and thoughts on that in a little bit. But you're, you're not in a good spot as far as seeding goes right now. A lot of games left, but you're still not in a good spot. And certainly, if you're the Bucks, you need to pick up a win against Western Carolina, which is what you've been doing for the last 20 plus years uh, that the teams have been playing. And I know there's a break in there, but still, every time they've been able to play, you've been able to do that in the regular season. Bucks desperately need that because they're going to get a couple national televised games coming up on um, Saturday and Monday. Very concerning for Western Carolina that they are shooting it so poorly from outside because they take so many threes. That is the vast majority of their offense and their threat and what they wanted to. I mean, they've taken 693 threes in 22 games. I'm not tremendous at math, but doing it quickly, that's about 32 per game. And if you're only making, what, 32% of 32 is something, what, nine, nine and a half, ten, mm-hmm. right around there, uh, you're just not converting enough of those chances. You mentioned it. No one really shoots the ball well. Outside of Marlo Gilmore, who shoots rarely, no one's shooting better than 45% from the floor. They haven't scored more than 70 points any of the last eight games, of which they have won just one. Seemed like we saw a more concerted effort from Ladarius Brewer flipping to the offensive side of the ball for ETSU to get into the paint against VMI and attack more and be more of what we saw, I think, last year. Because Ladarius has lived a lot on the perimeter this year. He has been, and at times rightfully so, a shooter. And he can do that because he is a very good shooter from outside. But it's almost a waste of some of his gifts because he is so strong and quick and explosive and a leaper that if you turn yourself into, and he hasn't done this completely by any means, but if you turn yourself into that 20-foot-and-out guy, I get that for a Jordan King, right? I get that for a Patrick Good, you know, similar body types, really good shooters. That's their game. But for Ladarius Brewer at, what, 6'5", and... 210, whatever it is, 6'6 six, six and 215. I, I don't know the exact numbers. Let me go find it. 6'5, 190. 190, but really solidly built. I mean, lean, like 0% body fat. Um, I think 190 might be a little bit low. Yeah, I, th- I think when he first came in, he was 190. Yeah, I, he's got to be over 200. Ty Brewer being 205 and Ladarius being 190. Yeah, I think he's, got, he's skewed over a little bit. So that's what the roster has, but I think Ladarius is closer up to 205, 210 himself and just so solid. This is another great chance for him to go and have success inside tomorrow. 310th in the country in blocks with the Catamounts. And remember, you look at the roster, their only real size is Joe Petrakis, and he's a stretch four, stretch five, plays a lot on the perimeter. Western, if they're going to have success, and these are just a couple of things I found looking over their successes and failures uh, during league play and outside of that, 
they want to crash the glass. When they have 40 rebounds or more, since they lost McCray 10 games ago, their wins have had 40 or more, uh, both of them. And their only loss when they've had 40 or more rebounds, 68-66, that Citadel game that you mentioned. So they're right in that one. In conference, they've turned it over less than 10 times twice. Those are both of their wins. And they're 3-1 and one overall with single-digit turnovers this year. They score 70 or more in league play, and they're 2-0. and oh. So there's just a few things to look at. Rebounding, keeping turnovers low, and maybe people can say, well, that's a great recipe for any team to win games and score 70 or more. Sure, but that has come to fruition for Western Carolina with those three things. All that being said, I don't think they have a chance. I really think they have no chance to win this game. I think ETSU is going to be about business going into this contest. I think they're going to put some of those frustrations in close games behind them if this game is close, and I don't think it necessarily will be. Um, I don't think they're going to look like the team that they have looked defensively lately, and that's what Desmond Oliver has harped on. I, I think he's had some time here to stop, sit with his team, say, look, we got to get serious on the defensive end or we are going to have major issues winning even one or two games the rest of the way. And Western Carolina, with their offensive struggles that we have talked about, not shooting the ball well from outside, from inside, not having anyone that can take over a game, not scoring it well at all lately, I think the Bucks have a bounce back on the defensive end and win by double digits. So I think the turnover thing, I had that circle too, the two games uh, in conference play, single digits, they got wins. Eight times in the non-conference, they hit ten or more threes. Twice in the conference season, now they're one and one. One of them was the overtime game against Citadel, their first win, in which they hit 15 threes, and overtime was 94-90 game. And then they hit double-digit threes and a loss to Mercer. But they're just, you. I mean, just look at that number just if I just said you had eight games of double-digit threes made non-conference, and then you've had ten games in conference, you only have two. I mean, certainly shooting the ball from the outside has not done you a lot. Now, there's two different ways they got to win. They hit 15 out of 41 attempts in the game against the Citadel. The other one, Chattanooga, they were just 6 of 24, but they were able to get to the line 27 times. They were 20 of 27, certainly had an advantage there, and they held Chattanooga to a very low-scoring affair just for a simple reason, maybe because they didn't have uh, Baptiste, whatever it was. It was 70 to 59. ETSU... I think because of the way Western turns the ball over ETSU and was able to get all those fast break points, uh, points off turnovers, I think that's going to be the key again. I think if, if you're a Western Carolina fan, you need to see single-digit turnovers so ETSU can't get out on the break, and then you've got to be able to hit double-digit threes. If you're going to continuously shoot 28 to 35 threes a game, got to hit some, got to hit more. And honestly, if they hit 14 or 15, that's going to change – I think the narrative of the game. Problem is, ETSU is pretty good at defending the arc. Now, Western Carolina did get uh, over 20 free throws attempted. I think 20, 20 and 26 against ETSU. So they went back-to-back games of 26 and 27 free throws attempted. They've not gotten that high since, but they drive and kick. It's a drive and kick game. If ETSU cannot foul, get in foul trouble, send Western to the line, and make Western shoot, it's up to Western to hit shots. Which I am not a believer that they can do consistently enough, so I am in agreement of how you see the game playing out score-wise is about what I think will happen. And again, I think it's about matchups, about other things. I think ETSU, the last several years, has matched up really well with Western, and I think that's going to continue on Wednesday. 
now. ETSU still has to come out, and I don't know that ETSU is good enough to just blindly show up, but they have been scoring. They have been shooting the ball much better. They've been sharing the basketball. They've been able to get in transition. So offense isn't the problem. It's been on the defense, and they're going to get a chance, I think, to get right a little bit because West Carolina is going to help ETSU out by not hitting uh, open shots or shots. And I think ETSU is going to be able to get turnovers and turn those into easy points. That's why I think ETSU has a huge advantage. And I'll say this. This is my last little bit on this subject. I thought the conference opener last year was the best chance that Western Carolina had to beat ETSU since they beat ETSU against Murray Bartow in his last game for the Buccaneers. And you remember how that conference opener went. 86-78, Bucks won at Freedom Hall. Big day for Ladarius Brewer, but more importantly that day for Ty Brewer, who scored 24 on 11 shots, had his best shooting day as a Buck, 4 of 5 from outside. And then you went on the road to Cullowee. And it, it was, was tied, ugly, yeah. gross, gross game, 59-48. to 48, But the Bucks locked down. And, yeah, Ty had 12. David Sloan had 12, Ladarius Brewer had 15. Those three were big. There wasn't a lot of points to be had at all, but um, the Bucks really stymied Western late on in that game um, and a lot of the day to hold them to 48. But since the conference opener last year, and then I'd say all the way back to the Murray Bartow era, the last game of it, um, I think that this is the best chance that Western Carolina does have to beat ETSU. Um but there's going to have to be a pretty incredible set of circumstances. Uh, and if that set of circumstances does unfold, the Bucks are going to have a lot of looking in the mirror to do. Be a huge uphill battle if Western Carolina can, can break the streak. And then there were three, I think, double-digit win streaks going into the season. Uh, ETSU had uh, one was um, just broken VMI. Then you're talking about uh, Western Carolina and then Sanford. Those are the three double-digit wins that uh, um, ETSU streaks have had. One's come to an end. Can the second one come Wednesday? 7 o'clock will be the tip time, 6.30 pregame show, ETSU and Western Carolina. Southern Conference Talk after this timeout. Sando Sidekick on the Buccaneer Sports Network. Luxuriously designed. Exquisitely detailed. First in its class. Corner to corner, a true work of art. Capable of going from zero to $300,000 in a few seconds flat. Are we talking about a sports car? Oh, no. We're talking about Jumbo Bucks Premium Edition Instant Games from the Tennessee Lottery. So test drive the new gold standard and instant tickets today. The Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. Southern Conference basketball. Time to dive deep in the league. There are things that have changed and things that have not. Here's one that has not. Chattanooga at the top. It's been a few weeks since we really took a hard look at the SoCon. In fact, it might have been right after the Mox lost to Western and Cullowee when they didn't have David G. Baptiste, as we talked about in segment one, and Malachi Smith scored 33 of their 59 points in a double-digit defeat. But that is nothing but a distant memory now. They've won five in a row. A couple of squeakers in there, but the last two over Wofford in the Citadel by double digits. 
eight and one in the league, eighteen and four overall. Question posed to me the other day, and I am very, very curious to hear your thoughts on it. I'll keep the identity of this individual secret for fear of reprisal. But if Chat wins out, losing the SoCon title game, Southern Conference is too big. I don't, I don't think. Chattanooga's non-conference is just not strong enough, is it? They well, I, I mean, they really could have helped themselves uh, with uh, – if they could have got one. I, I don't know they needed both, but they lost to Belmont. They lost to Murray State. Murray State, by the way, has two blemishes, I believe, on their record, and one of them is uh, your ETSU Buccaneers. And, but I think if they could have gotten maybe even more so the Belmont and then took the loss to Murray, I mean – Loss at College of Charleston's not great right now either, 68-66. Lost to Belmont. Oh, and they lost to Western. Oh, my gosh, they lost to Western. Yeah. So, I I think if they could have beaten Belmont or Murray and they have three losses and you you wipe away – I mean, if they won out and they got four, I I guess that would be the argument. They won out, they have four losses, they're a 31 team, they lose. I mean, the one thing is who's the best – is VCU the best to win? That's exactly what I was going to ask. They're 13-6 and six of the 6-2 and two mark in the A-10. That's a pretty strong year, and they're historically a strong program. I mean, that's – I I, mean, I guess that's your best – your best. Someone Mur- called a signature win, though. I mean, Murray State right now thinks – not today, but on Saturday I looked them up. I think they were 39th in the net ranking. So, Getting close to that would have been a road win. That would have been a, a tier one win. Now, I guess if Chat won, maybe they wouldn't be 39. So you got to look at all that uh, fancy math. But I think if they could have beat Belmont or Murray Number on the road. Number 27 now. So where is College of Charleston and Belmont? Because I think I just. Belmont 44th or 46th, pardon me. Okay, so that would have been a good win, too. That would have been a tier College one. College of Charleston 160. Okay, now where's Western Carolina? Because that's going uh, to gonna be. A, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pretty far down. So. That's gonna, okay, so that's going to be a tier four, one of your losses, right, or quad four, whatever they're calling that thing. So, I, and some of it depends on how the rest of the mid-major conferences kind of play out too. If you get to thirty wins, it would be tough to look at anybody and say thirty and four, no matter what. I, I mean, that would have them winning out. They would actually have five losses because they would have to lose in the championship game. It would almost look exactly like ETSU's 2019-20 year, except, again, you don't have that big yeah. signature win. You had LSU. Yeah. And, so, and, and, you know, ETSU had a single-digit loss at Kansas, who was a top seed True. in the tournament at their place. So, I, you know, you look at it. Or low doubles. And I'm, I, low doubles. I mean, Asheville, Tennessee Tech, VCU, Covenant, College Charleston, Tennessee Tech, Lipscomb, UNCA, Tennessee Wesleyan, Belmont, Murray State, MTSU, they did not play a power five whatsoever. Now, you could say VCU A-10. That's maybe one of the others. That's a multi-bid league. They lost to Charleston. Or, uh, yeah, well, it's Charleston CAA. You lost, I don't know. I It would be as much as I would love to see two teams in to try to set the standard. And if you're a SoCon fan and you're pulling for two teams, unless you're me and you don't still like Chattanooga for being Chattanooga, you should probably pull for Chattanooga to win as many as possible, and then Furman beat Chad in the championship game as of right now. That's what you should pull for. Murray State, by the way, two yep. losses. You mentioned that they're 20-2, and two, and 17 of those wins are Division One wins. Their only other loss. Can you name? I have no idea. Auburn, number one team in the mm. country. 
That's pretty incredible. Uh, so there's your take on if it's a two-bid league. I tend to agree. Um, just not being able to get one of those big mid-major wins. So what, where was losses. Chad on that net? I know you told me. I'm, I'm I did not. Oh, you did. I thought you did. Uh, too I have no idea. Okay, uh, good. I'm not be I, okay. I, that, that would kind of – how much could they climb? Because if they're right now in the 50s, they're going to have to get higher than that. And they could if they they, they went out, and depending on what, what happened. See, that, if they got in the 30s, low 30s, I think they would have a shot. I don't think it's guaranteed. And that's about where ETSU was with 30 wins. They were like 32, if I remember correctly, at the end of the – 2019. Maybe they were. Uh, you know what? I hope they were. I hope they were. Um, ETSU already in, so it didn't matter. I, I think it would have been tough to hold ETSU out. I think if the, I think that's the bad thing is who's the best win. You look at some of the losses, you know, and it wasn't like they got beaten like a drum by Belmont or Murray State, and they had a two-point loss to College Charleston. The eleven-point loss to Western is is what people will hang their hat on if they don't get in. That'll be more so than looking at the, the uh, who they beat. I think the Western loss could loom large on it. Now, if they come back and beat, oh, golly, can you imagine they lost to Western again? I, I think if they if they if they lost again before the tournament, I don't think they will get an at-large bid. I think the best shot for them to get an at-large bid is for them to win out. They get in the twenties of the net, and then I think you're really talking. And they need honestly, they need Furman to. To win out, except for when they play Chat in the regular season. Chat needs to win the second meeting with Furman, and then Furman needs to get revenge in the conference championship game, and they win to go. And then you got to put it in the hands and just hope that you get an at-large. And let's be honest, you'll be an at-large where they play in that eleven, you know, eleven versus eleven game. But that's fine; they're in there. You know, they get an opportunity just like was it Belmont a few years ago? I guess it was Murray State won the tournament. Belmont got the at-large. Rick Burge last year. They were able to play in the 11-11 game, and then they actually won and got to the next round. So I think I think Chet's best shot is to win out until the championship game, just like they were talking about ETSU in the same spot. I can't find the I, It's fine. It's it's fine. You might be right. I mean, it was definitely inside of 40. I know that. I thought they had climbed into the 20s, but I, I might be wrong. Uh, they were certainly in the 30s for a lot of the year. Anyway, that's a big-picture look because that's a burning question going down the stretch. Furman, the other team to have really separated themselves from the pack, Certainly looks like a two-horse race at the de facto halfway point of league play. Four straight victories for the Paladins. Three of those have been by 25 or more, the other by 15 over VMI. Really hitting their stride after that tight nationally televised loss to Chattanooga a few weeks ago. Let's talk player of the year. So we talk teams that are going on to the NCAA tournament, challenging for the NCAA tournament, two-bid league perhaps. Now let's talk individuals. Player of the year, I think it comes down to me, to these two teams, Chattanooga and Furman, since they're head and shoulders above the rest, a solid two and a half games between the Paladins and Mercer in third going into yesterday. Of course, Mercer winning, so those standings are a bit adjusted now. But look at this blind resume, and you'll know it. I think you'll recognize it pretty quick. Here's what my two candidates look like. One is the league leader in scoring, 11th in assists, 10th in rebounding, 3rd in field goal percentage, 4th in free throw percentage, 2nd in steals, 7th in three-point percentage, 15th in threes made, Eighth in assist-to-turnover ratio, 15th in offensive rebounds, seventh in defensive rebounds, third in minutes. And I'll go over those in a second again for you. But that is candidate number one. Okay. SoCon ranks. Candidate number two, eighth in scoring, 
fourth in rebounding, fifth in field goal percentage, fifth in assists, ninth in free throw percentage, first in steal, third in blocks, twelfth in assist to turnover ratio, second in defensive rebounds. Let me give it to you again. First candidate. Lead, league leader in scoring. Eleventh in assists. I think I got it. Is Malachi Smith the first one and then Slauson the second? Slauson. Okay. Third in field goal percentage, fourth in free throw percentage. Point being, Malachi ranks top 15 in 12 different SOCON categories. Then Slauson, eighth in scoring, fourth in rebounding, fifth in field goal percentage, so on and so forth. You talked about it a few weeks ago. He was top 10 in like eight or nine different categories. And the fact that he's first in steals and third in blocks is still pretty mind-blowing. So it's Malachi and Slauson for me. Do you see any other candidates? And of those two, who do you pick? No, I don't. And I would have, without even giving a blind resume, if you would have just said, off the top of your head, pick the top two or three, those two would have been the first two I probably would have said. And for me, I think it's, gosh, it's so tough. But I think Malachi Smith is so gifted and does some things offensively. The hard part for me, and I think people don't always take this into consideration, is you add in all the offensive stuff for Slauson and the defense. And I think people don't do that enough. So Second and steals for Malachi, I, but behind Slauson. I think Malachi will, would win the award over Slauson if, if you just go off that. That doesn't mean I don't think that I would pick Slauson because I think there are more things he has been able to to do and contribute. Again, I think you're splitting hairs. I would not have a huge argument if somebody said Malachi Smith wins. I don't think there'd be a huge argument if Slauson wins. I think preseason, mine was Malachi Smith, and I think he's still probably the best player in the league. But this season, it looks like Slauson, to me, has been able to do things and elevate, be a member of his team that has elevated. Because think about this, he's able to elevate his team because Noah Gurley really moved on. And, and I know they play different positions, but there's a lot of shots and, you know, um, things that I think he was able to step in. Plus, Garrett Heen, they tried forever to kind of make him that Matt Rafferty guy. Didn't work. Slauson's kind of done that. But there's very few big men that the offense runs through. Jake Stevens would be another one. But basically, it's Slauson and Stevens are the two big guys that that Princeton offense runs through. And so I think Slauson there, again, I – Malachi Smith is dynamic. Um, if, if you said one, trade for one player in the league, I would probably say Malachi Smith um, over everybody else in the league if I'm just cherry-picking a guy. Uh, but what Slauson's been able to do, and just judging on right now, now things can change, I think I would vote for Slauson. But I don't think people factor in a lot of defense, so I think Malachi Smith would win the award. I would vote for Malachi because I think he does more on the offensive end and still does have that defensive presence being second in the league. In steals, I think the argument for Slauson would be Malachi is surrounded by better talent. And so how much is he benefited by DeSosa and Banks and Jean Baptiste and the fact that this is, it seems on paper and is playing out in reality to be the best team in the Southern Conference. Now, with Furman, my opinion of them coming into this year was rather low. I still thought they were a top three or four team in the league, but were they going to contend with Chattanooga for the league title? I didn't see that. And so the fact that Jalen Slauson has done so much on both ends of the court, and I, I think that this can cut both ways, he's not on the floor nearly as much as Malachi Smith, but he's still able to put up the numbers that he is and affect the game as much as he is in less minutes on the court. I think that benefits his argument. Some would say, well, he's not out there as much, so 
they're not asking as much of him. They're asking more of Malachi. I actually think it helps Jalen Slauson because he's still doing what he's doing in less minutes. That being said, while that is the argument for Jalen Slauson, that's a good argument for Jalen Slauson, just in the fact that he's got less around him and he's carrying more of the load, um, I think that this Chattanooga team is the best in the league, and you've got the league's top scorer, and he ranks top 15 in 12 different categories. He's doing so much for them. And to me, especially considering the fact that he's second in the league in steals right now, if he's not first and third in steals and blocks like Slauson is, but it's not like he's a slouch on that end. He's not lazy. He's not someone that can drag you down. He's not someone you have to make up for. Um, considering he does still do things, at a at the very least serviceable level on the defensive end, for me it's Malachi. So I'm going to give you a fun one. When they played each other, Slauson 22 points, four rebounds, four assists, a block, two steals, and a turnover. Wow. Smith 21 points, nine rebounds, one assist, four turnovers, no blocks, two steals, and they were the best on their teams. And it may come down to when they play a second time. If Chattanooga wins a second time, probably going to be Malachi very Smith well could be. again. I think it's interesting. Furman. The, the amazing thing to me is ever since, you know, really that kind of nip-and-tuck game with ETSU, and then they lost to Chad. So you had nip-and-tuck game, ETSU, they won by nine, able to last three minutes, just outplayed the Bucks, quite frankly. Then tough two-point loss on the road at Chattanooga. And then their next four games, they are won by an average of 27 points. And throttle, it's tough to – it's tough to beat somebody by 20 once. And they've rattled off 38, 25, 15, and 30 to get two 30-point wins in the same season in the conference year. I mean, you can go look at every number one team in America and look at their schedule, and they're not doing that. I mean, you can look at the top teams at every conference, and they'll very rarely have a 30-point win, very rarely have a couple. Now, maybe Gonzaga and the West Coast, some of those older years, but right now West Coast Conference is starting to pick up, starting to get three or four teams that can compete with Gonzaga. But other than that, you probably can't find too many years where you get a – or even a stretch where you have three wins out of four games, 25 or more. So Furman is by far playing the best basketball at this exact second. Over, any, uh, over everyone else. And they're going to get the Citadel. They're going to get Greensboro, which was a nip-and-tuck game the first time around. Then they get ETSU and John City, which they have struggled, uh, except for the DeSante Bradford year, uh, senior year, they've struggled to win in Freedom Hall. And then they get Chattanooga. And so you look at they're going to be favored Citadel. They're going to be favored Greensboro. They're probably going to be favored Freedom Hall. They hold serve there. Then they're going to get Chattanooga in Timmins Arena, not the downtown arena, but they're going to get them on a Saturday, February 12th, at home. And for Furman, that'll be that, – that's the big game circle. Now, they certainly could lose to Greensboro. They certainly could lose in Johnson City where they had struggled. Citadel, I think they'll be okay. And then Chat. So, Furman – and right now it's a two-team race. It is Chattanooga. It is Furman. And I know we'll get to Mercer in a minute, and they're probably yelling, look at me, look at me. But it's those two teams and everybody else right this second. And if Furman can just win out and chat, could be an epic matchup there on February 12th. I'm with you. Malachi Slauson's very close. I favor Malachi right now. You favor Slauson. As what's, of right to second. What's helped both these teams, they've been very healthy, and they're very healthy right now, uh, outside of an absence here and there throughout the season, which have been very few and far between, nothing to worry about health-wise. Those are the best of the best. Here's the best of the rest. Last night, it was Mercer taking on Wofford, 5-4 and four in league play. 
were the Bears, uh, the Terriers, who were tied with BMI for fourth in the league at 5-5. Five and five. That tie broke in as the Bears down eight at the half, storm back and win 67-62 despite a quiet night from Felipe Hase. It's now 11 games without Neftali Alvarez, and Greg Gary, when I talked to him before the ETSU Mercer game, did not sound optimistic that Alvarez will be back this season. He said that he's had surgery, has been rehabbing, but hasn't been back for his doctor's appointment yet to progress. He wouldn't rule him out for the year, but said there's no timetable for his return, which is really discouraging for the Bears because they've started to show a little bit of his absence affecting them from time to time. But last night they showed a lot of resilience in getting that five-point win and moving into solo third, or I should say retaining solo third. Yeah, and, and their, their next game is going to be a big one. It's at Chattanooga. So they're, they're sitting right there. And honestly, like we said, if Chad is firm in 8-1, and 8-2, and two, then it's a jumble. Mercer's got four losses, VMI five, UNCG five, six losses, Wofford, ETSU, Sanford, Citadel, seven Western. And so the battle to get from three to nine, I guess, if you want to look at it with the six-loss group, the battle between three and nine is very slim. And for Mercer, they got Chad. If they lose that one, they're right there at, at six and five. And then you're, you're looking at So Mercer's got a chance. The win against Wofford I thought was telling because it was either going to get – Wofford to six and five, and then drop Mercer to five and five, or it's going to do the opposite, put a two-game separation between Mercer and the six-loss teams. And so, Mercer's got some pieces. I don't know, and they made the run last year, but that was with Alvarez, right? They went from the seventh back-to-back years. The seventh seed has been able to get to the championship game. It was Wofford versus ETSU. It was Mercer versus UNCG. I think they they need something extra. I know Jalen Johnson has been really good. I know Felipe Hase at times has been good. They've got some others that have been able to produce uh, here and there. Um, they got size. I think they just need a little bit more guard play. And if Alvarez could come back and go, it gives it there. Again, it's been able to work. Coach Gary's done a great job of getting things to work for them. And right now they're in the, the by themselves. They're sitting there at the three seed. But Saturday – when we come back and talk next week, we'll know more about Mercer when they play Chattanooga. Final net in 2020, you were right, ETSU was number 36. So mm-hmm. just to it's a little lower than I thought. Yeah. As for Wofford, they got shelled by Furman. They had gotten beaten pretty soundly by Chattanooga after that. Had a nice bounce back win against UNCG going into last night's game versus the Bears, but a tough one to lose on national TV on the road after being up big. Isaiah Bigelow, double digits, nine of his last 12. DJ Mack still rolling, Max Klesman still developing. A very Wofford team, I'd say, forcing a lot of turnovers, not making a lot of mistakes, sharing it, doing everything you would expect from them. But they slipped to fifth in the league standings with that loss. Yeah, not, it, again, it's they, they've got some work to do this. Now, they've got till Saturday, right? They don't play again. That's right. They don't play again until ETSU Saturday. So they've got time to sit there and prepare and lick their wounds. And it's a right now, if you have six losses, it's a, it's a must-win game. If you're trying to stay out of that Friday matchup, for the six-loss teams, Wofford, ETSU, Sanford, Citadel, three of those four teams are going to be playing. Now, obviously UNCG can lose. They got five. VMI could lose enough. You could get in there. But right now the six-loss teams are really trying to battle. And for Wofford, schedule, honestly, I don't. Uh, you may have in front of but I think Fur, Furman's the only top team. They yeah, have left no Mercer. At Furman, they do have Mercer at home on Tuesday. So, so Furman and Mercer are the only two uh, top teams that they got. Everybody else is a like team. So, if they can rattle off, matter of fact, the three next games are all six loss teams: ETSU, Sanford, 
Western. So if they rattle three off there, they're going to distance themselves quite a bit from those teams. Come to Citadel after that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so the next four games coming up for Wofford, if they're going to make some headway, they could get to nine and six pretty quick. Bottom four teams in the league. BMI fourth, right ahead of Wofford, right behind Mercer, the only team right at 500 in the league at 5-5. Five and five. You're fresh off seeing them in Lexington. This is where we can talk a little bit about ETSU BMI from Saturday. Conveniently, obviously, we glossed over that in the first segment. What struck me about the key dads up there versus down here in Johnson City, remember my critique on them was they had Cameron Kerfman, Jake Stevens, and no one else after they played here in Johnson City. But it was almost the exact opposite of how things went this past Saturday. Trey Bottom, 21 points. Honor Huff, 18 Jake Stevens did his thing, but an off day for Kerfman, something I thought they could not overcome. They did with Huff and Bonham. A couple of shots went down for Sean Conway when they didn't here in Johnson City. It's almost exactly what David Sloan said after that game against VMI in Freedom Hall. He said he thought a couple more shots would go down in Lexington. Clearly they did for Conway, for Bonham, for Huff, while maybe a few more missed from Kerfman. That trio, along with Stevens, was able to carry them over ETSU in a tight game. I mean, for VMI, they got to score. Um, when they get over 70, I think, you know, they got a couple. Of, they lost ETSU 80-79. to 79. That was a one-point game. Lost at Chattanooga 78-74, but they had 64 points against Furman. Got beat pretty good. Only had 56 against UNCG. Got pretty good for VMI. Can they get to 75 or more? If they can get to 75, they have a shot to win a game. And if they don't, then they're going to struggle. The next game they got UNCG, and I think that's going to be a struggle for them offensively to get enough points on the board. I think they're going to struggle offensively against Mercer. I think Western, Citadel, Sanford, not any issues. And then they're going to go back-to-back games with teams that defensively are going to create problems for them, Chattanooga and Wofford. I think at the end of the year, VMI is going to be about where they are now, 500. And the question is, is that going to be enough to keep them out of the seventh seed? My guess is yes. They won't be playing on Friday night if they can finish the season 4-4. Four and four. Jake Stevens, by the way, double digits in 16 games in a row with a 20-20 game and seven double-doubles in there if you care to throw him into player of the year conversation. Number two in the league in scoring, tops in the league in rebounding. He's very solidly my number three, if not pushing, should VMI make a push number two or one. I had him, If again, if, if I was going to guess my top three, if you would have asked me that earlier, he would have been the third guy I would have put it. All apologies to... Hayden Brown, the preseason player of the year, but Jake Stevens would be my three. UNCG looked like they couldn't hit the broad side of a barn coming into their matchup with ETSU. They had scored more than 70 points one time since the end of November, but unfortunately the Bucks defense has been a cure-all lately for opposing offenses. 80 against the Bucks tied their second-most points scored of the season. Then they got torched by Wofford, their defense, that at one point from the end of the non-conference through the beginning of the league season didn't allow 60 to an opponent in four straight has allowed 81 per game the last two. One of their rotation players and one of their better rebounders, Kyrie Thompson, hasn't played in the last month and a half. Not saying he would be a major difference maker, but for a team that struggles to score, lacks a lot inside defensively, even with Muhammad Abdul-Salam, and with too many turnovers, you need all the help you can get. Yeah, and I think the way they play defense will give them a good shot at home against VMI, and then their next game's at Furman, and that'll be interesting because Furman has been rolling offensively UNCG, who was kind of locked down earlier and held Furman, I think, to 58 points in the first matchup, that's going to be the big test. I think if they can hold VMI's high-powered offense, they can hold Furman's high-powered offense in check, then I think that would certainly put a feather in their cap, get them above 500, and make a statement in the league. 
if they can't get stops, then I could see VMI very easily going in there and picking up a win. I can certainly Furman at home could score enough to beat UNCG, and then all of a sudden they're sitting there staring at a four and seven mark after this week. So of those middle four and throwing ETSU as the fifth right now, sitting number seven in the standings, I'm not asking you to pick between Chattanooga and Furman at the top and the best of the best, but who is the best of the rest for you right now in those middle five? Ooh, that's a good one. The middle five. I can't bring myself to say Mercer, even though they're third right now. Because they're And and, and And because of Naftali Alvarez. If he's in, he's very solidly with the Bears' number three spot. True. And and I I think that changes things dramatically on how you feel about them. But their next two games, Chattanooga, Chattanooga for Mercer. Chattanooga, Chattanooga, VMI, UNCG, ETSU. And then you get Western Carolina, Citadel, and then you're at Wofford. So they've kind of beaten up on some of the other teams, and they've lost ETSU already. So if they lose, which is very realistic, that they lose the next two. Now, sometimes you play those back-to-back, right? You can snake out a win. But if Mercer were to lose that next two, all of a sudden they are 6-6 six and six going into VMI, UNCG, and ETSU. And I'm not predicting a five-game lose streak, but it's not out of the possibility of me saying those teams. That I said if they lost five in a row, I don't think you would call me crazy. I think I, you know, I don't think they're going to win five in a row. But if they go something simple like three and two, then I think they're going to look very good at nine and six compared to some other teams and would be solid. So right now, just because Mercer has a few more losses, they probably have the inside track. But I kind of like Wofford's remaining schedule better than I like Mercer. So I'm going to say Wofford, because of the schedule, is probably got my inside track to snake up there. Uh, and honestly, if I just take ETSU out of the equation, I would say Wofford. I think ETSU certainly got some favorable matchups. The problem is they've got to play more on the road. You know, you got to go to Wofford. I mean, you get Furman and Chat, you do get them at home. But you've still got to go a few more. You get Sanford on, but you've still got to go to UNCG. Still got to go to Wofford. I think, you know, I don't think – I think they're going to win Wednesday, but still that's another road game. you got to go to the Citadel. I think they'll get that one. I, it, it very, I think schedule-wise, Wofford has the favorable. I think Mercer clearly runs a gauntlet here in a little bit where other teams are able to spread some of their games out. And VMI sort of the wild card. I don't think VMI is going to be able to hit enough shots to get to that three seed, so I think they'll be middle of the pack. I think UNCG can't score enough, so they're middle of the pack. So I think Wofford, Mercer, ETSU have the best shot to get to the, the highest uh, rank they get. I don't think Sanford and the Citadel can, so I think ETSU, Wofford, and Mercer, and honestly I think Wofford would have the inside track because of the schedule. I think ETSU – may have the, the next um, part because they played the top two teams at home. And I just think Mercer has got a ridiculous schedule, and they could very – and if they lost those five in a row, sitting there at six and nine, now they do get Western Citadel, and then they get Wofford. That could be ten losses. They could be eight and ten after that and kind of licking their wounds going into it. That Alvarez, I think, I think the narrative's different. But without Alvarez, I, I think Wofford is my best of the rest right this second, even though they're a couple games behind, and they just lost to Mercer. So we talked best of the rest, best of the best. Now here's the rest of the rest. Sanford coming to ETSU next week to see if they can break a long losing streak to the Bucks versus, or as VMI did a few days ago. They're 3-6 and six, tied 
with the Citadel for eighth in the league and seemingly locked into one of the play-in games. I mentioned them before the other Bulldogs because they're trending upward while the Citadel may be trending the other way. Sanford back-to-back wins, a nice victory in decisive fashion at home against Mercer, and then on the road in Cullowee, they pull away late to win by 10. Your guy Cooper Capes missed the win against the Catamounts, but when we're mentioning role players like that going down, you know that it's a pretty healthy league right now, and indeed it is. Outside of one significant exception, which we will mention in a moment, I want to talk about a newcomer guard, though, but not the one that you're probably thinking I'm going to talk about. Quez Glover, we know he's an impressive talent, but in the freshman of the year race, Wesley Cardet is right in the middle of it. Seems like a three-headed monster in the conversation for this award. I'd throw Mohab Yasser of ETSU in there. Cardet, who has started every game for the Bulldogs and averages nine points and five rebounds per game. And then I think the man that most would have is the favorite, Jason Roach of the Citadel, league leader in minutes, the only freshman in the top 30 in the SoCon in scoring, and second in the league in three-pointers made. Yeah, I... Roach, I, I was impressed with him. He had a little bit of Fletcher McGee in him. Absolutely. That The way he was hitting those threes, off balance, off one foot. And just a freshman. And, and, you know, McGee had that his freshman year where he would go in spurts and then not be able to continue that throughout the game. I think Roach has a possibility of being able to – and how in the world? I think a kid's from, like, San Diego or California or something. Like, how in the world Bauckham has been able to find a couple of guys – from all over the the map to shoot like that. I mean, you look at they always seem to have a lanky dude that comes out of nowhere that's not in a traditional state that you think recruiting hotbed for the Citadel, and they come in and they shoot and they shoot well. And then uh, Frierson, some of these other guys have moved on, but you can go down the list of um, you know there was AB right Fletcher AB comes in he was that way his freshman year so I, I think it's a great job. Caden Rice. Caden Wright, yeah, that Bauckham can find shooters. Maybe it's the system, but you got to be able to knock down shots, correct? I mean, Western takes as many shots as humanly possible at three. They're not knocking them out. So you still have to find the guys that can do that. So I think Roche has been the – I think he's the hands down. Now, again, I'm not discounting the, everything else and everybody else right yet, but I think Roche is certainly one of the guys that you would look to and think he's got to be – one of the best. Now, I don't, yeah, I don't know the update on Cardet, uh, Wesley Cardet Jr. for Sanford. He went down with an injury. Cardet started and played 30 minutes against Western. Uh, certainly, if he is injured, then so he came back. So, yeah, he, he, <laughs> that he, would change the conversation on freshman of the year. All right. So, uh, but I do think he, him. I can't remember. They played. Um, oh gosh, who was it? Was a Mer- he got hurt in the Mercer game? He started and played every game, so it must have been okay. a better thing. Okay, yeah. So how many minutes did he play in the – or do you know? You 30. Say. Western in the Mercer game? Yeah, in the Mercer one. Uh, I can probably pull it up quick here. Mercer, 14. Yeah, so he, le- he left – I knew Sorry, I watched – No, 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 26. No, nope, 26. Oh, okay. Yeah. I knew he uh, got attention and got off the floor, and at, uh, at that time, you know, it looked like he had been, you know, been chop blocked by somebody from behind and wasn't going to be able to walk for a year. But he's good. He's, he's recovered. One guy that may not be good is the preseason player of the year, Hayden Brown, who had to leave the game against Chattanooga and Charleston on Saturday midway through the first half with what appeared to be a thigh injury. Now, that's not something you imagine would be serious, but it did cause him to miss the majority of the 13-point loss to the Mox. He did not uh, return. So without him, obviously they would be in real trouble. It would give Roach a chance to bolster his – freshman of the year candidacy, um, but obviously if you don't have the preseason player of the year, Hayden Brown is pretty much everything to them. They've got some other guys that can shoot it, there's no doubt about that, um, but you can't replace a Hayden Brown. 
question for you. If he had his shorts full length, would that have protected his thigh? That's a fair question. Very good. He it does wear on, a thigh pad. It does depend it's like a where thigh on pad. the thigh the injury was. I yeah. suppose if it was lower down, then yeah, yeah, all the help you can get, right? That, that's what I'm saying. I'm just wondering if, if that was the case. That's a great but point. He does wear thigh pad, like football thigh pads underneath there because he does tend to not be afraid to, like a bull in a china shop, just put a head down and just drive his way in the middle, just crashing the ground a lot, had a wrist injury against TTSU, bounced back, tough kid. Um, if he's out for a while, certainly Citadel is going to be hurting, to say the least. No matter how many shots Roche gets, I think they're going to be hurting if Hayden Brown is out for a significant amount of time. But if Citadel is going to be successful, they are certainly going to need Hayden Brown. And they're going to get firm, and then they're going to get Sanford, the Battle of the Bulldogs. And it could be just a seeding game on Saturday. But Hayden Brown's out. Citadel's in a lot of trouble. And we if he's out, if he's out, I should say that. Plenty. Uh, we don't need to revisit more catamounts. You can hear much about them. They're playing a Friday game uh, just because uh, VMI has that thing on Saturday that uh, the, whatever the event they have every year that puts them out of that. So they got to wear a Friday game. So maybe if they think it's a high school game, they'll be able to play that. Mm. What do you think of that call? That is All right, go. Uh, very bold. Very bold to do. Well, uh, this is going to be fun. Next segment. Next segment, we'll tell you about it after this. Anna Sakic on the Bucket Sports Network. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead, investing in our community today, and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero-emission electric vehicles, harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy, and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power, here for you. Sandos and the sidekick, and sometimes we like to have fun. I don't know if you've paid attention to the podcast ever. And uh, normally we like to have fun when it's not uh, me and Mike, although Mike likes to have fun about me. I do like to have fun at the expense of others, yourself included. And there was a moment during Saturday's game against VMI, which, by the way, props to the key dads, because that place, and I wasn't there. I could only listen to you and watch on TV. It looked like it was electric. It was awesome. It looked like there were people reaching out and grabbing the few hairs left on your head. Like, they were that close, right on top of the action, and were into it. There were there were several times during the timeout they would tap me, literally touch me, and say, hey, can I get a stat sheet, <laughs> or whatever it be. And they were great. The other thing is I've always enjoyed is they wear the, the rings and the, the railing right behind me. They all in unison will hit their rings on the thing. And if you're not wearing a headset – that is loud, especially when you're sitting right below it. Um, so uh, it, it is – they have done – Dan Earl has done a good job of – because they always on Saturday, the key dads are there. On a weeknight, it's tough to get them there because they got other things. And if you're going to play VMI, you're going to play them on a weeknight because there's not as many key dads, cadets there. On a Saturday, it's either you do extra duty or you go to the event. So whether it's wrestling or track or – Basketball, they go to as many events as possible, which is great. It builds a lot of that. But sometimes they're on Saturday and they're just there and you don't hear them. 
they tend to be more loud on Saturday because there's more of them than they do on the weekdays. But the last couple of years, they have progressively, even in football, because they've had some success in football, they have progressively gotten more into more school spirit and game. And Saturday was the best basketball atmosphere I've had there. Well, perhaps it was that energy in the building that led to some electricity on the microphone. The man sitting next to you on Saturday afternoon, known far and wide by ETSU fans, as one of the most passionate Buccaneers around, he has a degree from the university, has worked here almost 15 years. I'm not sure he's ever had a moment quite like this. Deep drive, tough shot over man. The floater won't go. Rebound tapped out. Jordan King a rebound. King got knocked down. Oh, you got to be kidding me. And he didn't call the foul. Kerfman, King thought he got shoved down by Kerfman. No whistle. Chest knocked out of bounds. That is a foul. I don't care home or road. That is a clear, cheap foul. That is Kevin Brown in all his glory. Director of Communications, ETSU Athletics. And we'll get to a few others later. But the pure emotion, the raw, you can feel it through Could, could the you hear that, the slap of the table uh, on the first well, part of that? I'm happy to listen to it again. Tough shot over man. The floater won't go. Rebound tapped out. Jordan King a rebound. King got knocked down. Oh, you got to be kidding me. And he didn't call the foul. Kerfman. King thought he got shoved down by Kerfman. No whistle. And King ain't going to get it. He got bumped. Elbowed in the chest. Knocked out of bounds. That is a foul. I don't care. Home or road. That is a clear, cheap foul. Homer well, Road. It's a verbal table slap. There's no yeah, doubt. I'm he not did, sure I heard the slap. But. Yeah, he did, because uh, that's what that's what kind of made me chuckle a little bit was when he. Was that it? Because I chuckled pretty much the entire thing. Well, I try, yeah, I tried to hold him. I've worked. You did pretty well in that moment. I've worked with him <laughs> a lot in the baseball. That's what we'll uh, And I've listened to him some when he would do some, some sit on the mic in some women's games back in the day when John Stevens was doing the games. But. It was one of the situations where I, I have seen that, done that, but when he slapped the tables, when I just, I kind of chuckled, but I was able to. You just got to drive, you know, you got to drive through it as much as you can. Well, he wasn't done. Brewer, he's going to drive, spin, backdoor pass to Yasser to tie Brewer, and he gets fouled. He'll shoot two. Stevens gets saddled this second. Finally, Jordan Arnold blows the whistle. They're late on these whistles on shots. They're missing calls. You So, he went further. Now you, I don't know if you have the bite, but he went further to say that this is the second year in a row that Arnold had gotten us in Lexington. 
which led to the drive home of, hey, can you look who did the game last year in Lexington? No Arnold. <laughs> I said, I said, hey, could you could you check two years ago? No Arnold. No. Three years ago, no Arnold. I said, what about at ETSU? Maybe you just missed because I I contend. There are plenty of referees I've only seen a couple of times that I think who's or, you know, like a normal fan broadcaster you don't particularly want to see call your games that I can recall random games that they call. And people don't. We look it up and it's there. And there's other times people say that, and they're right. They're there, and I don't remember it. So I thought this was one of those where, like, oh, man, I, you know, he's nailed something here. We've gotten, you know, this guy's got us twice. But, no, no, that was not it. He is misremembered. Well, there's a lot of different ways we could go down this path on Kevin Brown and that meltdown on air, which is an all-time classic for me. First, I want to provide some context on the Jordan Arnold versus Daryl Arnold reference that you made. And this goes way back. Pitch out. They'll throw behind the runner again. Oh. This time, they didn't get him again. You've got to ring him up there. We're at home. It's a close play. Second straight time down there. Daryl Arnold's standing here laughing. <laughs> so one ball, one strike, two outs. Kevin Brown beside himself. We'll get him collected in a second. <laughs> runner comes and says, Derek Bush. That's my job. Get him collected. Well, and you haven't called baseball in, like, seven years. So this is a dig into the archive. It uh, and and Daryl, as you know, because you do not, Daryl's on the the like seven man rotation that does all the non conference games and some league games, but more non conference. So you see Daryl a lot, and that particular year, for whatever reason, we couldn't get Daryl to call. It. I, mean, I remember sometimes like Daryl, just call strike, buddy. Like nobody wants to watch twenty seven walks. I don't care if you're lying about strikes. At some point, give us a strike. And for whatever reason, that one year, he's not he's not got an awful zone. He's fine behind the plate, but for we had a stretch where every game he did, we actually had a stat of how many walks were in just his game compared to everybody else that did a game. And he just had, a, for whatever reason, just had a trouble doing it. And it was in the first part. Actually, it was, I think that was midway through the year. So we just had all of those. And then that was a uh, midweek game. And then we had the – what my favorite part was the, the second time you throw down it. So if you throw down twice and it's close and you're at home, you should get the call. That's what I heard. What did you hear? And then he got mad. He was chuckling because they were one of the players, the, the ETSU first baseman, said something to Daryl. Daryl said something back, and they both laughed. And I liked that he was appalled that the first, the ETSU first baseman and Daryl Alder were allowed to have a chuckle together. What I heard was about what I'd expect from a man that just gave us this. Oh, you got to be kidding me. And it's funny because I heard that, and it reminded me of someone else. Beep, beep, get out of my way. Now, I don't know if that's just my imagination, <laughs> but Santos and the Sidekick fans will remember that former character. Uh, very, very strikingly similar dulcet tones. Um, I wouldn't call the Daryl Arnold a blow-up. From Kevin, that was more of a light-hearted moment during the broadcast. Now, the Jordan Arnold at VMI this past Saturday it was undoubtedly a blow-up. We tried to go back and find perhaps the other contender for the best Kevin Brown blow-up. See what you think. Up for a long look. Now the pitch Simcox this time does short the bunt up the third base side. Simplot tried to barehand it, fumbled it a little bit, and did not get the runner at first. The bobble cost Simpler the freshman. You better score that in here. <laughs> I'm telling you that. Right Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Our fir- no, you cannot do that. Our, our first Kevin Brown lost it in we the broadcast the same moment. play happen in the first inning. Trey York hits one back to the pitcher. He bobbles it, throws it away, and calls it a two-base error. I'm sorry, but come on. Talk about home cooking. 
44 minutes in. I'm just, just marking it down. It's a joke. Right around first and third. So, who is he mad at there? He's mad at the official scorekeeper. The official scorekeeper. Okay. His wrath knows no bounds. I think I think that was Tennessee too, and that was our first broadcast of the year right after basketball. It was I March eleventh. Pointed out. I love that you remember the date and that you pointed out literally the exact time that it took. Not very long at all, an hour and forty four minutes. So again, clearly I'd worked with Kevin a lot and knew at some point there is going to be a blow up. And that was a situation where Northern Kentucky was one and Eastern Kentucky, I don't know what about the Kentucky schools, directional, but Northern Kentucky, the the guy gave a couple hit errors where Kevin left. We had They provided us a tent in the stands right behind home plate with, like, a phone line or whatever. You know how it is. Oh, yeah. And he, like, went and charged. You had to go by the home team dugout to go in there to talk about whatever, so hit errors. So he would go. And um, so then it got to the point where the next year, because it was the same SI, so forget about the, the stats and the players. And all that. The next year, Northern Kentucky came to ETSU, and I remember he told me no matter what happened, he was going to hose Northern Kentucky on every <laughs> single stat. And there were some egregious rulings for the simple reason of last year he couldn't get the guy to change anything, so he just lost it. And just, I mean, even I think the coach in Northern Kentucky even called Coach Scullin like, um, I don't want to really argue a lot but there's a couple in here like wow like can we get that and i think skull eventually got kevin like three weeks later to change some of them but i mean it was there's some grudge so i've been with him when he's when he's talked to other scorekeepers uh, i've been with him when uh he's thrown actual papers out of the press box because he's so appalled by, by whatever's happened so used to it but and honestly last couple of years in basketball you know i just turned on his mic during the coming out of the breaks because he'll have a stat or he'll kind of, you know, like you do kind of when you work with somebody not a lot, he'll kind of hold his hand up or finger up like, hey, I got something, and you turn him on. And this year he hadn't really said a lot. So, honestly, I've left his mic on more this year than not because I hadn't had to deal with, you know, the normal Kevin Brown. And so <laughs> you quickly regretted that, but then it became fun. So I just left it on more as he got a little more comfortable uh, chiming in. I haven't been around him nearly as much as you have, but to me, on air, that is his best blow-up. I mean, anything that culminates with this. Oh, you got to be kidding me! The pure raw emotion, to me, it gets no better. Now, again, you've been broadcasting with him for years and years and years before I even got here, but you helped me go back and find some other stuff, and it's tough to match. Now, of course, if that's his best personal blow-up, then I had to go and see, is it the best blow-up in Buccaneer Sports Network history? And I'm not sure I necessarily even called this a blow-up, but it is probably the strongest critique, I guess I'll say it in a nice way, the strongest critique of an opponent or opponent's uh, setting or anything on there, really, that I've been able to find. Now, feel free to introduce other evidence, but this is one of my favorites that I've long enjoyed, and I think it rivals the Kevin Brown. It's just a Bush League play. In a Bush League building. Good old Bruce Trambarger. I believe his first year with you on Buccaneer Sports Network coverage of ETSU Men's Basketball. So that was Wofford's old building. And the scene was one of the Wofford players during a free throw walked into ETSU. You know how normally, like, when you're shooting free throws, the coaches will meet with their players. Now it's on the floor. But the sort of unwritten rule is – you don't go over there and stand next to the coach and the players are talking. You go talk to your coach, you stand at midcourt, you don't go into their quote-unquote huddle, even if there's one or two guys. So it's Coach 
Murray Bartow. It's Coach um, Mike Young. Now, Coach Young, I think, didn't see what happened. What happened is the player goes in, and I think it was Justin Skinner. Uh, and so Skinner goes in, and Coach Bartow kind of tells him to leave. Skinner walks away for a second, comes back. And then the third time, Murray kind of gives, I don't want to say a stiff arm, but kind of just held his hand out to where, don't come over here. Well, Young turns around and sees what he thinks is the stiff arm. And as you can imagine, thinks his player got shoved. So he comes at half court. Technical fouls are assessed. Uh, The Wofford faithful, all 14 of them are throwing um, objects, if you will, at the ETSU fan base. And this is the old building. They had one security guard who – couldn't stop a bag of Skittles from leaving the arena. So it almost got ugly because it was just nobody there to do anything about it. And it was one of the odd plays because I think, and I've never, I've always meant to talk to Coach Young about this, but then never, never remember the story in time to talk to him. And now he's not in the league, so I'm not going to be able to talk to him. But I'm wondering if he knew his player did that. Now, one, obviously he didn't want Coach Bartow to stick his hand out and touch a player, whatever. I get that. But he's kind of an old-school guy. And sort of the unwritten rules, I think, mean something to him and what he teaches his players to play the right way. So I don't I don't think the full thing was there. So as the thing had blown up, as the technical fouls were assessed, as Coach Bartow was getting the wrath of people and the fans are throwing things, that led to Bruce Trambarger's um, a Bush League play, which it is. Uh, it's, uh, again, basketball is not quite known for its unwritten rules. But everyone knows. You just don't walk over there and sit next to the coach and the players are talking about whatever at the free throw. You know, it's just one of the things you don't do. And so that was a Bush League play. And, of course, the Bush League building was the old building. Now they have a spectacular building. Really great building. So. We should probably give some context to this, too. Oh, you got to be kidding me. That play in the second half at VMI, Jordan King chasing down a loose ball, is standing right on the intersection of the sideline and the baseline in the corner and you guys were right behind Camden Kerfman, probably, what, 15, 20 feet behind him as Kerfman closed in to try and make sure that King was trapped in the 21 corner. feet because we're at the – I was 21 feet because I was exactly at the head of the three-point arc. So Kevin he was, was eight, he was he was probably he was actually other end of the table of an eight-foot table with absolutely no angle to tell if there was an elbow into the chest. A little block. We had a blocked view. And – you go back and look at the replay, and they have a camera right on the baseline. And it may have been a foul. It may have been. There was no elbow at all. And there was very marginal contact is how I'd put it. If you if you sync the clip up with that highlight, it would be tough to know that that's what you're talking <laughs> about. <laughs> if you sync that up with the highlight, that's it would exactly be tough yes. to get there. Now, oh. again, in the heat of the moment, Frustrated with some non-calls, and the again the angle we kind of had was not a great look because we're looking through Kerfman and Kaufman. King, to his credit, you know, saw, tried to sell. Right, he's falling about the door to go to the ball. He's trying to sell, didn't get it. Um, foul, sure, but when you hear the call, it, 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 I appreciate the sell job, but the angle to try and break down the play, let alone get absolutely over the top, blow a gasket, furious about it. Questionable at best. I'm sorry. That's the ruling. Yeah, that's, that's tough. That's oh, tough. fantastic. That's, I wish I would have uh, kept many of Don Hellman blow-ups on officials uh, back too. in the early 2000s. more blow-ups, the best. I agree. Yeah, all right. That'll do it. Thursday, we're talking recruiting ETSU football and Santa's sidekick on the Buccaneers. Of course, that works. <laughs>